0: Welcome to the Salt Company Cedar Falls podcast. We're a ministry of Candeo Church, and we are glad you're listening. Amen. Amen. Wow. I feel like I just want to keep worshiping for the rest of the night. That was so good. Hey, will you guys just pray with me? Wow, Jesus, you are so good that we could sing song after song. We could lift our hands. We could shout. We could do everything in our power to make you um, look amazing. But Jesus, we would never run out of things to do because you are so infinite and so amazing. I'm so excited to hear from your word tonight. And so Jesus, would you speak powerfully? Your words have been ringing in our ears for thousands of years in this book. I pray that you would make it plain to the people listening tonight. So Jesus, we love you. And we can you continue to worship as we hear from you in your word. Amen. All right, you guys can go ahead and take a seat. Uh, Thank you guys for coming to Salt Company. So this is my favorite night of the week, like I said, uh, because Thursday nights we gather together as college students and we worship Jesus and we read our Bibles. If you guys have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, you guys can take them out. We're going to be in Luke chapter 10 tonight. And so every week it's pretty simple. We worship Jesus, we open up the Bible and hear what God has to say to us. And so um, as you guys are turning there, though, I've got one picture just by way of introduction I haven't taught yet on a Thursday night here. My name is Ander, and I'm on staff, and I have a picture of my current family right now, and so... That is basically just like my entire heart on the video screen for all of you guys to see. Next to me in that picture is my beautiful wife. We'll go back real quick, is my beautiful wife, Laura. She is amazing. You guys, if you know her, you like her a lot more than you like me and that's okay. Uh, She is, yeah, she's amazing. My soul delights in her. She is my best friend. There is no one else I'd rather be married to. A lot of marriage is just hanging out and so I love hanging out with her, which is great. Uh, and then that little nugget in the front, her name is Kenzie, and she's not actually our biological daughter. She is our foster daughter. So she is just with us um, for a little bit. But you guys, my wife is an absolute beast, okay? Before we were dating, before there is, I was in the picture whatsoever, she was like just assessing her life and how she could maximize her life and her resources and energy for the gospel. So she went through the foster care certification on her own, like did all the classes, all the certifications and everything, and became a certified foster parent and I knew that going in that was one of the things that I loved about her and actually a few months into dating she got a placement of two little boys that were absolutely adorable we had them for a few weeks and then they went back and then as our relationship progressed um, and we kind of moved towards dating and then we got engaged we were like just beginning to plan our wedding and we got a call asking if we would take an 11 month old baby girl That was Kenzie, and we prayed about it, and we were like, I don't know. This seems crazy. We're trying to plan a wedding. We're going to be newlyweds. need to figure that out, but um, you guys, it was really simple. Jesus calls us to do hard things as Christians, and so I don't know that it was the wisest decision. I wouldn't not recommend it, but don't know that I would wholesale recommend it, Uh, but it's been awesome. So we've been taking care of her together, and it's been really awesome. So I just threw in another picture of her because she's really the one you want to see. That's Kenzie and Mr. Elephant. She sleeps with him every night and she won't go night-night without it. So she just reaches for night-night, night-night, and then she puts herself down, it's great. So that's Kenzie, that is my family right now. yeah, but tonight we are uh, going to be in Luke chapter 10. And last week we started our series in parables. And so parables are these fictional stories that Jesus told to represent a spiritual reality. And Rudy Hartman, who's up here from Ames last week, talked about the parable of the soils and the four soils and our desire both to be good soil and to end up good soil. And tonight the parable that we're going to be talking about is the parable of the good Samaritan. And whether you grew up in church or not, whether you're like really familiar with Jesus's teachings or not so much, you've probably heard the phrase good Samaritan before. There's like a ton of newspaper headlines with it that said, I just read one the other week that said New York police officer and good Samaritan helps women who passed out on train tracks, which that sounds crazy, I should have read the article. But there's all these like, like things going on that good Samaritan, which basically when people use that, what do they mean? They mean like somebody who's really nice. Somebody who went above and beyond the call of duty did like a random act of kindness that no one asked to do. And that's like, fine, that is an okay definition of what it means to be a good Samaritan. But I'm telling you guys, the actual meaning of this parable is far greater than that. You see, every time Jesus taught one of these parables, every time he told one of these fictional stories, he was talking about salvation in the kingdom of God. He was literally teaching us what it means to be saved, how we can be saved, and how to like, live under the authority and the reign of King Jesus. And I'm telling you, he didn't take a break from talking about those realities to just tell us just to be nice. All right, and again, Christians should be nice. We should be the nicest people. Amen to that. But I'm telling you, Jesus has some greater realities to tell us tonight. And whether you came from like Norrin Hall playing video games or like Hillcrest, just as like a very super normal Thursday night, however you got here, whatever you were doing before, I genuinely believe that God has something to tell you tonight. In fact, he wrote it down so that you could hear it. And as we hear Jesus's words, know that these are his words penned for us to hear, the God of the universe has something to say. And so look with me at Luke chapter 10, we're going to start in verse 25. I'm going to read one verse and then explain it. It says, Then an expert in the law stood up to test him, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? All right, so we've got this scene kind of out of nowhere. We just zoom in to Jesus. And so what's happening right now is Jesus is traveling kind of all over the region of around Jerusalem. And he's going to different towns and villages. He's teaching people. He's healing people. He's doing miracles. He's doing all these things on his way to Jerusalem which is the place that he would eventually be killed on the cross. And so he's in no hurry to get there and he's stopping and he's teaching people, trying to like get the message of the gospel out there. And so he's, he's at some village in some town, maybe like a market square, maybe the temple, we don't really know, but he's teaching his disciples, the people that were closest to him. And in the middle of whatever he was teaching them, probably about the kingdom of God, this teacher of the law, this expert in the law stood up to test him, saying, and what this means that he was an expert in the law, don't think like law and order, don't think criminal lawyer like we think of today. No, this expert in the law, he was an expert in religious law. He was an expert in religious law, which means that he would have had the entire Old Testament, which is like this much of your Bible memorized word for word. Not only would if he had it memorized, he would have studied it and its meanings. He was like an expert and not only knowing the law, but practicing it in his own life and enforcing it in the community around him's life. This guy is like, puts PhDs to shame. He's above all that. He's this elite religious scholar that knows like everything. He's like the Bible trivia champion of the olden days. And so he's, he's out here and he brings a question to test Jesus. And what does he ask him? And 25 it says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He asks him a question that probably all of us in this room at some point in our lives have asked, right? What do I need to do to be saved? If heaven is real and Jesus is the way, how, what do I need to do to go to heaven when I die? It's a fair question. What should I do to be saved? But how does Jesus respond to this question? Look at verse 26. He says, well, what is written in the law? He asked him, how do you read it? All right, so Jesus knows this is a test because he's Jesus, he's God, he knows things. He knows this is a test and so he gives one, him one back. He's like, hey, you're an expert in the law, right? Like you've studied this stuff, tell us, what does it say? What is the right answer that what must I do to be saved? And this is like, it's his time to shine. So he answers, 27, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, he told them. Do this and you will live. All right, so this guy, he knocks it out of the park. He says two things. What does he say? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Those two things. And Jesus is like, great. Yes, that is perfect. That is the right answer. If you want to do to, go to heaven, do those two things and do them perfectly. And the Pharisee isn't exactly satisfied with Jesus' answer because look at what he says in 29 but wanting to justify himself. He asked Jesus another question and said, who is my neighbor? All right, so the Pharisee, I'm sure like a lot of us in this room at some point is wanting just a little bit of clarity. He's like, all right, if that's what I need to do to get heaven, if, if what I need to do to be saved is to love my neighbor as myself, Jesus, who exactly is my neighbor? What do you mean by that? If that's actually the way to heaven, I'm gonna need a little bit of clarity on what exactly that means. And so it's in response to this question, to the question of a Pharisee seeking to validate himself, seeking to show everybody else, Jesus, what exactly do you mean like that? I want to prove to everybody that I do in fact live up to that standard. He wants to validate himself. And it's in response to this question that Jesus now tells the parable of the good Samaritan. So he asks the question, seeking to validate, who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells him the parable of the good Samaritan. Here it is. It starts in verse 30. Jesus took up the question and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him up, and fled, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the road. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place and saw him, passed by on the other side also. But a Samaritan on his journey came up to him, and when he saw the man, he had compassion. He went over to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine. Then put him on his own animal, brought him to the inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. When I come back, I will reimburse you for whatever extra you spend." All right, so this story, it's packed with meaning. It's an amazing, it's an amazing story that I really think it's crucial for us to understand. So we're gonna go back to the beginning, take it line by line and really figure out what Jesus is saying here. So go back to verse 30 and says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell into the hands of robbers. So there's this man, all right, he's going down. He's presumably Jewish, Because the audience was Jewish, Jesus was telling this story, so they usually assume when someone tells you a story that the person is like you. So we can assume that Jesus means a Jewish man is going down uh, from Jerusalem to Jericho on this road. For all of us who've been to Jerusalem, you know what this road is, right? What this road is like, right? How many have been to Jerusalem? That was a joke. You guys, we're from Iowa. Nobody has been to Jerusalem. We have no idea what this is going on here. At best, we go to Florida. For some reason, Iowans love going to Florida. There's a bunch of flights out of Cedar Rapids. So given that none of us have like been to Jerusalem, been to this road, I got a picture of it up there. All right, here's what it's like in Jerusalem. Here's what this road is like. It's got like 80 degrees difference of elevation. There's all these windy roads and these rocks. And what would happen is these people would be traveling down this road and like thieves, bandits. Uh, criminals would hide behind those rocks and in those caves and jump out and ambush people. And they would beat them and they would take all their stuff from them. In fact, this place was called the Bloody Way. That was the name of the road. So you definitely didn't wanna go on this road alone and you for sure didn't wanna go at it at night. But here's this guy walking alone, probably going to the temple or to doing some business in Jericho because this was the only road that connected to those places. And the name of this road like proved its value because it actually happens to this man. He's walking, maybe riding a donkey down this road to Jericho and they pull him down. They rip off his clothes and began to beat him. And punch after punch is coming as some men are beating up on him. Other men are loading up all his stuff as if it's their own. And right when they grab the last garment, the last thing he owned, the last like knockout punch, he's bleeding on the side of the road. They roll him into a ditch and leaving there. So that's kind of like the situation in the context. We have a naked guy laying in the ditch, bleeding half to death, and some other people come by. Look at verse 31. It says, a priest happened to be going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. All right, the first man to pass by this guy is a priest, right? Which like seems on the surface like a good thing. All right, priests are good. They're religious. They should be nice. Like maybe preferably I'd want a doctor. But like a priest is a good second or third round draft pick. Like, all right, nice guy. He might know some people. He's pretty connected. So priest, he's all right. But what happens? The priest does not live up to his reputation. He actually sees the man and moves to the other side. And notice it didn't say like, hey, he didn't notice him. He like didn't see him behind the rock. No, this was like a willful calculated avoidance. This priest meant to do this. And this would have thrown off the lawyer at this point. Do you remember the guy that asked him the question? See, this priest, this would have been his guy. This would have been like a fellow religious elite that knew the Bible that like was part of his tribe. And so he would have expected that, oh yeah, here's our hero. Here's the hero of the story coming to save him. But when Jesus makes the priest, the bad guy, I'm sure like the lawyer started to just reel a little bit inside. But Jesus doesn't even stop there. Look at verse 32. It said, in the same way, A Levite, when he arrived at the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. So now we have a Levite. We had a priest. He sidestepped him. A Levite. Now he sidesteps him. For those of you who don't know what a Levite is, a Levite was literally somebody chosen by God in the Old Testament to serve the priests and do religious duties in the temple. Isn't that so sad? This was the guy that, out of all the people, God chose him hey, you will be my representative to the people on earth. You are going to facilitate the operations of the temple. You are going to teach people how to worship me. There's this Levite, and he sees the man, and he steps to the other side of the road, and he leaves them there dying. What the heck? So is this not actually, well, I know it's a story, but isn't that actually crazy? Like if there was a man like crying out in pain, bleeding halfway on the sidewalk on your way in, and you just like kept on walking into Salt Company, that would be outrageous, would it not? Like if there was a man bleeding out backstage and I saw him and I was like, oh, that looks bad. Well, I've got a sermon to preach. So probably not, not tonight and left him there. Would that not be absolutely psychotic, all right? At worst, at best, I mean, I should lose my job, if not be like imprisoned for some sort of like crime against humanity. This is like psycho. But why was it worth it to those two men? What went down in those two, not one, but two religious men who saw that man hurting and chose to go aside and thought that was the best course of action? You know, Jesus doesn't explicitly tell us why, But there could have been any number of things, maybe because they were religious, they were thinking about that they would become ceremonially unclean or ritually unclean. If they touched blood, if they touched a dead body, they couldn't do their priestly duties. Maybe they were busy. Maybe they figured he was dead. Maybe there was a bunch of things they thought what they had to do was so much more important that they didn't even know how to help. So why even try? I don't know exactly what was going through their minds, but any number of excuses made it so that these men are not the heroes of our story. These men are not the men who went to the religious ones, the ones that were supposed to represent God to people, to have God's heart towards the hurting and the broken and the needy, they totally missed the mark. So if they are not the heroes, if the lawyers' friends, if the people he expected to come to the rescue aren't, who is? Look at verse 33, but a Samaritan, on his journey came up to him, and when he saw the man, he had compassion. So same situation, he's on the road, he sees the man, everything's the same so far, but what was different? The Samaritan had compassion. You see, unlike the religious men before him, the Samaritan, what he saw didn't make him cringe, it filled him with compassion. You guys, he didn't avoid him, he approached him. He didn't go to the other side. He went to the man's side. And he went and he bent down and he started to bandage him and to take care of him. He had compassion. And if the lawyer who asked this question wasn't already like super angry at Jesus, then this would have sent him over the edge because he hated Samaritans. In fact, all Jews did. That even the parable title "Good Samaritan," he wouldn't have even had a category for that in his mind, right? That is like us saying, "Yeah, the compassionate Hitler walked by and helped him." It just like it doesn't make sense, all right? The way the Jews, especially like the religious elite, thought of these people, do not think college football rivalry, and do not think like public Republican versus Democrat. No, it's way worse than that. Think more of like the Nazi Germans hating the Jews or the Native Americans hating the white men who came and killed their families and pushed them off their land. This is like a gut, visceral, I hate you and genuinely want you dead type hatred. And Jesus, even knowing that, chose to make the Samaritan the hero of the story because the Samaritan stepped up to the plate and he had compassion. But his compassion didn't just stop with a feeling, right? The win wasn't that he just felt bad for what he saw. He did something about it. What did he do in 34 and 35? He went over to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring olive oil and wine. And then he put him on his own animal, brought him to the inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. Because he stopped and he went and he bandaged your wound, his wounds. I don't know about you guys, but when I travel, I don't bring gauze and band-aids and stuff. That's just not something I think to pack. Maybe my wife does. She's way more like better at packing everything we need, but I don't carry that stuff. And I doubt he was either. So maybe, I don't know, maybe he had to rip his garments. Maybe he had to destroy his blankets or nice fabrics that he had to make bandages out of this. And not only did he like give up his possessions to make bandages, he poured out olive oil and wine to get some sort of maybe antiseptic, maybe some sort of soothing from the oil. I don't really know, but you guys, this is expensive stuff back then. It's not like he could have just like run to the supermarket and like got it on clearance. You guys, this is like really expensive liquids. He would not have had, this may have been the most expensive thing he was, he was carrying with him. And yet without hesitation, he opens up his saddlebag He takes out the most valuable thing he could have to offer and freely pours it all out on this man. Doesn't even ask. And he's still not gone. You guys, the priests, they walked to the other side. Maybe even if they stopped, they definitely wouldn't have touched them because that would have made them unclean. But what does this Samaritan do? He stops, he picks this man up. And where does he put him? On his own animal, in his spot, on his saddle and walks with him. And I don't know how scared that Samaritan was as he was walking through this really like dangerous, scary place with this vulnerable guy on his donkey. I don't know how long they had to walk. It's a desert climate. It's probably super hot, but it was more worth it to give up his spot so that this man might have a chance to live than be comfortable on the way down. And he keeps going. What does he do? It says he goes to the inn and he spends the night at the inn. You guys, this is crazy. If he was on that road, it meant he had someplace to go, right? He was either going down to the temple to worship or going up to Jerusalem to do business or something. He had other places to be. And this is like the ancient East culture. There's no cell phones. He cannot call his wife and tell her where he's at. He cannot update his boss and tell him he's going to be a bit behind. No, he has total disregard for anything else going on in his life and puts all of the things that may have been important to him moments ago and considers this man and his situation as the most important thing he can do. And the next morning he gave two denarii, which would have been two entire weeks salary. When is the last time you just gave up two weeks salary for someone else to the innkeeper and said, I'll be back if there was more. Which, what is he doing in that moment? He's turning over a blank check. He's like, hey, I don't even know how much this is gonna cost me, but I'm telling you, I'm gonna cover it. He didn't count the cost before he chose to love and to serve, he gave it freely without knowing how much it would cost him. But his yes was already on the table because this man is a compassionate, caring man. He gives him a blank check and says, I'm gonna see this thing through. Whatever it costs, I am willing to pay it. You guys, the Samaritan is amazing. He saw this man in need, was filled with compassion, but didn't just feel bad for him. He did something extravagant for him. And then Jesus turns around and asks the Pharisee in verse 36, what does he ask him? Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And then look at his answer in 37. The one who showed mercy to him, he said. You can like almost hear this dude can't even say the word Samaritan. (laughs) He doesn't even do it justice enough to say the Samaritan. He says, ah, the third guy, I guess. It's like so painful. It's like laborious to put it out of his mouth to even admit the fact that the Samaritan was the hero of the story. He is way too proud for that. It's the man he hated. He was too proud to say it because the man that was the hero of the story was the man that never in a million years would he have gone out of his way to love and serve? And that is the point that Jesus is trying to make. Jesus is exposing his heart that he has actually done a terrible job at loving his neighbor like himself. Jesus is actually correcting this man and his question. Did you catch that? How did this whole parable start? Do you remember? The religious lawyer asked Jesus what? What must I do to be saved? And the answer, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus is like, yep, that's the right answer. Do this and you will live. Or in other words, hey, if you can obey that perfectly, if you can genuinely with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul and strength for every second you live, if you can do that perfectly, then you can have eternal life. And that was the twist the lawyer was not ready for. You see, he knew the right answer, but when Jesus told him it wasn't just knowing the right answer, but living that out, the lawyer knew he was guilty. Because what he knew in his mind was impossible to live out in his life. What this man was able to quote theologically, it was impossible for him to live out practically. You guys, it's not enough to know the right answers to be saved there's something about that knowledge that needs to translate into something different in our lives. And so feeling guilty, this religious lawyer, he does what we all do. He searched for a way to validate himself, right? He was trying to like lower the standard. Jesus said, hey, love your neighbor as yourself and do it perfectly. And the guy's like, oh, I'm not gonna do that. Right, Jesus, how, who exactly is my neighbor? Can we, like, can we like narrow this a bit? Can we like do that? And don't we do that all the time? Isn't it funny? that everybody you ask uh, how good you have to be to get into heaven, whatever bar they set, their life lines up with it, right? (laughs) They're like, I don't know exactly how good, but like at least as good as my life because I know I'm getting (laughs) in. Or at least like we all do it, right? We all just, hey Jesus, how can I just narrow this definition? How can I like lower your bar so that my life lines up with what you demand for heaven? How How can we do that? What do I do? Like, how can I be good enough? But look at Jesus's response to the lawyer because Jesus's response to the lawyer is his response to us. See, Jesus did not reduce the standard of loving your neighbor. He actually raised it to an impossible height. Jesus doesn't bend to make salvation attainable. He actually shows us that it is literally impossible. In fact, this whole story, the whole story that he's telling is to meant to show this man that he is in no way capable of loving his neighbor in this way. Because never in a million years would this lawyer have realized that to love his neighbor would mean that he would have to love a Samaritan, a gross, hurting man in the rough part of town, who is a different race, different socioeconomic status, and needed his help. And that to love him, like Jesus was asking, didn't just mean feeling bad for him, but it meant radically sacrificing everything he had to offer. No way he could live like that. He was far more like the priest going around a body. And so I'll come to, here's the thing, I get that probably none of us have sidestepped a man that is like bleeding out to death. If you see that between Macher Union and Rod Library and you don't do anything about it, we need to have a discussion. So I get that probably this week, has anybody that would be anybody, anybody dying? All right, that would have been crazy. But nobody bleeding out. So we haven't sidestepped somebody who's bleeding out in the middle of I's campus and I get that. But there are probably far more ways that we are like the religious men than we would like to admit because can we just be real for a second? Rarely do we actually love our neighbor the way Jesus calls us to. Can we just like get that out in the open that none of us, there's no one sitting in this room, not me upstage with the microphone, not our staff, not, our, not your connection group leaders, not anybody in this room actually does this really well. We all like fall short. And there's like a million examples that I could give, but let me just give one. So you may not have left someone for dead, but if you have ever gossiped about somebody, if you have ever said something behind someone's back about them that you would never say to them, you have not loved your neighbor as yourself. You have already torn down your neighbor and you have already disobeyed Jesus's command to love your neighbor as yourself and to do it perfectly. And so what we need to know is that for everyone in this room, me and you together, it is impossible for us to obey these commands and get eternal life in the way Jesus calls us to. And that makes Jesus's final statement so difficult. Look at what he says at the end of verse 37. Then Jesus told them, go and do the same. What the heck, Jesus? You just told this whole story and proved to us that we can't actually love our neighbor as ourselves. We can't actually be this good Samaritan. Like, oh, but go do it anyway. You guys, why is that so hard for us? Why is it true? that none of us can actually love other people like that. Why is it that we rarely sacrifice the way this good Samaritan was sacrificing for other people? I think it's because we forget who we actually are in the story. I think the reason that we don't love other people the way that Jesus is calling to love other people here is because we forget who we are in the story, okay? Because if it's impossible for us to be the good Samaritan, then we can't be him. So that rules out the good Samaritan. But if Jesus commands us to go and do the same, he's like, hey, be like the good Samaritan. Well, then we can't be the priest and the Levite either, right? Because Jesus says, don't be like them. So if we're not the Samaritan and we're not the priest and we're not the Levite, who's left? Who's the last character in the story? The man in the ditch. So company, don't you think it's possible that given the impossible nature of this command to love other people, coupled with our inability to obey it perfectly, that the person that we most resemble in this story is the man left for dead in the ditch. Isn't it possible that that's who we actually are? Because I'm gonna read this story one more time, and as I do, put yourself in that guy's shoes. I don't know who you were thinking maybe you identified with the first time, But if we are that bleeding man in the ditch, listen to this story with that lens on. Verse 30, the parable of the good Samaritan. Jesus took up the question and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him. They beat him up and fled, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived to the place, he saw him, but passed by on the other side. were still not saved, but a Samaritan on his journey came up to him, and when he saw the man, he had compassion. He went over to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine, and then he put him on his own animal, brought him to the inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. After reading that story with the perspective that we are the dead man in the ditch, let me ask you a question. What type of neighbor do you want somebody to be for you? Stop asking the question, how can I be a good neighbor? What do I need to do? Instead, ask, who needs to save me? What type of neighbor do I need to get me out of the ditch? You guys, we need a neighbor like the good Samaritan. And the good news is this, Jesus Christ is that good Samaritan. The command to go and do the same is not given to people who need to muster up this energy and their courage to go and be a good Samaritan. No, the command is given to people who are dying, bleeding in the ditch, but have had a transformative encounter with Jesus where he entered in and saved them and brought them back to health. So I'll come, you guys need to get this. You cannot be a good Samaritan until you are healed by the perfect Samaritan. You cannot go and be a good Samaritan until you are healed by the truer, the greater, and the perfect Samaritan, Jesus Christ. Which is amazing, you guys, because Jesus, like the good Samaritan who saw the man bleeding out in the ditch, looked down at you from heaven and saw you in your sin and saw you in your rebellion, saw us dying because of the choices we have made, saw us not loving our neighbors the way we should, he saw us not able to save ourselves, but actually in desperate need of saving. And like the good Samaritan, Jesus was filled with compassion. And so he left the comforts of heaven and he came down to earth and he came to the ditch. You guys, like the good Samaritan, poured out what was most valuable to him, the oil, the wine, God Almighty gave you what was more, most valuable to him. The thing that was most precious that was worth more than anything else to God was Jesus Christ. And God has poured out Jesus Christ to you without thinking twice about it. He has given you his most valued possession to heal you, to bandage you. When God gave you Jesus, he gave you the most valuable thing he could possibly offer you. And he meets you in the dish, in the ditch. And Jesus healed us not just by letting us ride on his donkey like the good Samaritan, but actually riding his own donkey into the city of Jerusalem, where he would be trialed and mocked and condemned and whipped and crucified for the sins that you and I committed. And he healed us by his wounds, you are saved. You see, Jesus came down and became wounded so that we don't have to be wounded anymore. Christ left heaven and came down the bloody way so that we don't have to be on the bloody way anymore. So company the answer to get into heaven is not try to obey the two commands as good as you possibly can. No, the way to heaven is on the back of Jesus who came down and obeyed those commandments in your place. And now we get his obedience as if it was our own. Now don't get me wrong, Jesus does command us to go and be the good Samaritan. We are to act like that, we are to live sacrificially, but he only commands us to be the good Samaritan after he has completed his work as the perfect Samaritan, after he has healed us, after he has nursed our wounds back to health, given us a new heart that transforms us in a way that we can love other people like that. Salt Company, what would it be like if people knew you went to Salt Company not because you wore our T-shirts, but because you loved them so radically and unconditionally well because you know that the God of the universe loved you in that same way? What would it look like if this room right here, right now began to realize the healing and the hope that we have because Jesus was the perfect Samaritan and began to radically love the campus of you and I in Cedar Falls? You guys, the campus would be so different. This place would be radical. Salt Company, you have a perfect Samaritan who was the good neighbor that we are called to be. Will you pray with me as we thank Jesus for being that perfect Samaritan? Father, thank you for seeing us in the ditch, seeing us bleeding out, seeing us helpless and not shying away. God, you would have had every right to leave us there in our rebellion because we put ourselves in that ditch. But Father, full of love and full of grace, you left heaven. You emptied heaven's bank account of its most valuable possession and sent your son, Jesus. And Jesus, you got down off of your own animal and you came to the ditch with us and you took on our wounds as if they were your own, and you allowed yourself to be killed in our place. Jesus, I thank you that you have healed us, that you have made us new, and it's no longer up to us to perfectly obey, to get into heaven, but actually to trust your perfect obedience, that that gets us there. Jesus, I am so thankful for who you are. We worship you now. Thanks for listening to the Salt Company Cedar Falls podcast. For more information about Salt Company, you can visit saltcedarfalls.com.